The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for opportunity now to open up your word and to listen to it again. And I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear, to really hear, to, to grasp it, to understand it, to take it in, particularly in some of the complexity this morning, particularly with some of the things that may be, may be difficult to to comprehend or to receive, would you, Spirit of God, would you move so in this room this morning that we have ears to hear? Teach us. Shape us with your word. And as you do so, Father, please this morning particularly, would you cause our hearts, the hearts of your people, to see something remarkable and to worship. But that is our hope every, every Sunday that we gather beneath the Word, every time we open it in our own homes. That is always our hope. But particularly today, Lord, would you cause us to not get lost? Would you keep us from getting lost in detail and, and in concept and cause us to see and to worship? You are a God of remarkable grace and kindness to us, your people. Grace to give us something that we do not deserve to give us life, cause us to see that and to worship. And in worshiping you as such a God, to rest seeing this and understanding it and, and being drawn into worship should lead us into rest. And so, Spirit of God, would you work in your people delightful, joyful, vigorous rest because it should not lead to passive rest but confident, engaging rest. A worshiping, rejoicing, resting people that are confident to engage with the world all around us because we understand something of you of your goodness and of your, of your wonder. So Spirit of God, would you do that? It, it, in my mind, seems like a tall order, but nothing is too hard for you. So do that this morning. In the hearts of us, your people here, draw us to you. Those who are not yours here this morning, Lord, draw them. Save and sanctify and build your church. Honor the name of your Son. Father, this is what we ask you to do today. We pray in his name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 8, where once again we're going to consider the famous parable, the parable of the sower. As we noted last week, Jesus and his band of disciples are traveling around Israel from town to town, and Jesus is preaching constantly everywhere he goes. He's constantly proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. We saw that in verse 1. And one day as the crowd was flowing to him, it's, there's a crowd gathering, it's coming in, it's coming in, it's coming in, and, and as the crowd is gathering, he told this parable about a farmer throwing seed that as it went out, it landed on four different types of soil in four different environments. Saw this last week. We noted that the main concern throughout this parable is that of hearing the word of God. That word here appears a bunch in here, particularly as Jesus explains the parable. It is critical that we hear, that we take in and embrace, not just hear with our ears, but that we, that we hear, that we take in and embrace the Word of God because what hinges on it is everything. Salvation hinges on it and the fruitful life that God wants for His people that we want, it hinges on whether or not we hear, take in, and hold fast to this Word. This good news of the kingdom, that there is a kingdom, that there is a king that the only way into the kingdom is by faith alone in Christ the King alone. His forgiveness of our sins brings us into his reign. That's the message. It's critical to hear and embrace, but it's also hard to hear and embrace that because there are many obstacles that the soils are revealing for us. 
Satan himself snatches away the word sometimes, and there's, there's just no effect. And other times affliction comes upon people, and they are, they are turned off. They, they appear to be turned towards Jesus, but they are turned off by affliction and hard times, or in the opposite way, turned off by good times. Cares of the world and riches and pleasures choke out what appeared to be a, a real plant. All these are obstacles, and, and they're put before us to, to point them out to us and to call us away from them, because in the end, they all prove fruitless. And in the moment, we are to see that and say, oh, no, and to turn away, to draw back from it and turn back to Jesus. That was our first pass through the passage. But now we're going to consider it again, because there's some more here to see particularly as we notice the scene change in verse 9. You'll recall last week I skipped verses 9 and 10 because there's something that we're going to be focusing on this morning. There's a scene change in verse 9. He spoke the parable to the crowd gathered, 4 through 8, and then he ends it, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, and is done. And then there's a change. He's no longer talking to the crowd, but just to his disciples. To the church, so to speak. Similar to how he, with the Sermon on the Mount, was speaking to a large crowd, and then the scene changes, and he speaks just to the disciples, just to the church about the church. So he's giving an inside scoop to the insiders, which of course, always, outsiders, those not in the church, those not of his disciples, can hear it. It's in the Bible, anybody can read it, and anybody can hear it this morning. But it's important to realize that what he's saying is particularly directed towards people who are disciples, the church. That's the you of verse 9. Verse 10. He's speaking an inside message. And as we do that, we realize that one of the other purposes of this parable, particularly the explanation, is to orient Christians help us understand something about the world in which we live, understand something about how God deals with this world, God deals with us, what's going on. It's a little bit of a kind of a peek behind the scenes for insiders. So what we're working towards this morning is, is some greater insight, some orientation in the world and what God's doing and how we are to understand crowds that are massing and seemingly eager to hear Jesus. That's what we're going to work towards this morning. Let me read verses 4 through 15. We'll be focusing on the, the verses that I skipped last week, but I'm going to read the passage so that we understand the context. Verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones in the rock are those who, when, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. 
It's the word of the Lord. I'm going to make two observations, and here's the first one regarding the purpose of God. God speaks in parables to reveal to some, but also to conceal from some. God speaks in parables to reveal to some, but also to conceal from some. Jesus' parables are short stories or descriptions often drawn from everyday events, and we are probably most accustomed to thinking of them as if they are illustrations. As if Jesus, like other teachers commonly do, pulling out a, a simple life example to make a complicated concept clear, to clarify it, to help it stick in our minds. But that's not quite what's going on in parables. We would be closer if we thought of a parable as sort of an open riddle. I say sort of because it's not exactly right. But it's an open riddle. If you, if you think of it like this, it's, it's communicating truth, certainly. There's truth there, but with more complexity rather than more simplicity, more clarity. This isn't exactly right because a, a bunch of riddles, of course, are just nonsensical. They are completely opaque. They're, they're odd and bizarre until you get it. And that's not, certainly not what a, a parable is. A parable is not nonsense. But a parable does resemble a riddle, an open riddle, in a couple of ways that contain truth that's a little bit cloaked. It's concealed, as if right up front asking the listener a question, do you care enough to think about this? Because there's something here if you want to hear. And then, secondly, like a riddle, there's often a divide in those who listen. A bunch of people who listen say, nobody's got time for this, and they turn it off. For one reason or another, they don't want to listen, but other people say, hmm, and they ponder. Parables have truth that's out there in, in plain language, but it's, it's hidden a little bit, asking the listener, do you want to think about this or not? Let's see that in the text. Jesus' statement in verse 10 pertains to all parables in general. It's plural there, the parables. He's talking about all of them. And he says, to you, this is verse 10, to you, to you disciples, to you my people, has been given. Critical point. We are immediately at something critical as we're going to see something precious. But that's how it literally reads. You exist in the state of, you my people exist in the state of been given something already. This is exactly the same grammatical point made when Jesus in the previous chapter was talking to the woman that comes in and weeps on him and anoints him with oil and he says to her, you are forgiven. He's talking about something that's already happened. You stand in the state of having been forgiven. Same thing here. You stand in the state of having been given. Not, I'm about to give you in a minute, next verse when I explain the parable, and not, I will be giving you in the future as I tell more parables and explain them more. Right now, you, my people, are in the state of already we're given something. A status, a, a condition. You, to you, it has been given. What's been given? A privilege. Continuing the verse. It has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. To you, it has been given already. You are in the state of, you have been granted a privilege, a permission sometime in the past to know so that going forward into the future, at some point, in, at some time in the future, you would be born and you would live and you would then come to understand something. You would see it. To use the language of this passage, you would hear it. Permission was granted to you so that an ability would be yours at some point coming up 
that you would know the mysteries. Or as some English versions put it, the secrets. The mysteries of the kingdom of God. And if we keep that word mystery, maybe that triggers in your mind that that's a common New Testament word talking about a collage of truths that all boil down to one truth, the gospel. There is a kingdom and there is a king. His name is Jesus and the way into the kingdom is by faith in Christ crucified alone. And that king then comes to live in your heart and you are brought into the kingdom and you live then under his reign and under his peace. Forgiven of sins, made an heir and a citizen. That, that's, that's a way that one could express the core mystery of the kingdom. And of course, there are lots of, of sub-mysteries there, but the identity of Jesus and how the atonement works. Lots of sub-mysteries, so it's fair to call it, plural, the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom. But the glorious truth here in verse 10, which we have to kind of center our minds on and not get lost in all the, the thought about the gospel, the mysteries, the glorious truth here to you has been given to know. To get it. We need to slow down and see that. To you has been given to know this. A gracious gift given to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't purchase it. It was given in the past already before you and I are having this conversation, says Jesus to his people. But for others... The reason we got to slow down here is we, there's, there's some complexity here that we need to think about and carefully hold in our two hands right side by side because to you it has been given, but to others it has not been given. They do not, these others, do not stand in the state of having been given. Rather, the mysteries, they are in parables, it says. But for others, they are in parables. Why? So that, that's purpose. That's divine intention. On purpose. God means something there. Not just... It happens, but I mean it to happen. So that, and then we get a quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, which is a very sobering quotation. We need to think about this carefully. Isaiah, chapter 6, is a famous chapter. It begins with that vision of Isaiah seeing the Lord high and exalted, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the beginning of chapter 6. And then that high and exalted God sends Isaiah out to preach to the people of Israel. And if you just read Isaiah, chapter 5, you'd probably have a, a, a hint as to what that message is going to be. Isaiah, chapter 5, is full of God pronouncing woes of judgment unto Israel. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Time after time, all through Isaiah chapter 5. And that's what he sends Isaiah out to preach to Israel. Woe to you, judgment is coming. And Isaiah asks him in chapter, 11, chapter 6 verse 11, How long should I preach this, Lord? And the Lord's answer to Isaiah, Until it is all destroyed. That's sobering. That's the context. Isaiah 5, Isaiah 6, that's the context that sits right around our quotation, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. This is how the Lord tells Isaiah to go preach this message. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. 
Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, as you preach, you're going to make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. The Lord is saying to Isaiah, keep preaching, Isaiah. You're going to be standing right in front of them. They're going to see you. You're going to be speaking their language. They're going to hear you. But they will hear it and not hear it. And they will see it and not see it. And instead, this message will be so continually offensive and off-putting that it will dull them, it will weigh heavy on them until they turn it off and walk away and reject you and me. Which is what I intend, Isaiah, because I intend to judge and destroy. That is hard. Which may cause some of us, as we hear that, to, to kind of just drop, whoa, God intends to judge and destroy? God should be, shouldn't he? Should be about mercy and he should intend forgiveness. To which the answer is yes, and he was for 1,500 years. One five zero zero, give or take a little bit. He is a God of mercy, and He is a God of patience, and He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and He cries out, turn, why would you perish? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but He is holy, and the wicked do die. He is holy, 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 as Isaiah just saw with crystal clarity. He is a God who intends mercy and He is a God who is holy and is just and so He also must intend judgment. And He has at this point in Isaiah decided, I am done appealing. I have held out for 1,500 years hands of mercy and I am finished. This is God. And so he sends Isaiah to the people to speak the message about what God is going to do, knowing that that message is in fact what is going to drive them finally away, harden them finally in their sin into the judgment that he intends. That is sobering. And it is true. And it is what Jesus grabs hold of and pulls into Luke chapter 8 to explain part of the parables. They are intended, the parables are, to have this sobering and a dividing effect. To you, my disciples, he says, has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. So I'm going to reveal them to you. I'm going to, I'm going to lay them out in front of you and reveal them right in front of you. But I'm going to do that in a way that also conceals them from others. For whom intended judgment is coming. I speak in plain English, so to speak, Aramaic. I speak in plain Aramaic right in front of them. Everything is laid out right. Here's the evidence of the kingdom. Look at the miracles. Look at the dead who walk, the, the lame who walk, the dead who live, the blind who see. It's all right here in front of them. I will speak, and I know these words will turn them off and they will be hardened by them due to their sin, but you, you hear it and you think about it and you process it further with me and you see and you hear. You are drawn out and drawn to me. The dividing effect of the parable, I'm going to lay it out there and some will be drawn and some will be pushed. Notice this very carefully. Why do you, the you of verse 10, you as people, as disciples, why do you fall on one side of the line and not on the other? Left to ourselves, we wouldn't understand even ourselves. We wouldn't understand the depths of our own hearts. We wouldn't understand God and His true and holy nature. We wouldn't understand the kingdom of God. 
wouldn't understand God's plan to set up a kingdom, wouldn't understand God's plan in sending Jesus, and it would not be remotely attractive to us in ourselves. We wouldn't see any of it as needed or any of it as good, and we really wouldn't hear anything. We wouldn't want it, and certainly not above all things. That's what we would be in ourselves, not because, not because we have any physical limitation, not because we have an intellectual problem of some sort. An ordinary person can understand all of the words and all of the concepts involved here. This is not an intellectual issue. It is rather an issue of spiritual darkness. It is an issue about the condition of the human heart. A spiritual and moral darkness because of our sinful fallenness in ourselves by our natures. We are blind and deaf to spiritual truth. And we are accountable for that because that is what is at the core of being fallen in sin. It is our nature, not just our behavior, that makes us accountable before God. But in, if you grasp this, then these are not just words, but they are gloriously true proclamations. But in amazing grace. It is amazing grace. In marvelous mercy. It is marvelous mercy. In alarming love. It is alarming love. God decided. God chose. In the past. To graciously give to you. A gift. To hear, to see, to know. Not because of anything we have done, would do, not, but not because of anything in us, but because of His mercy. We are not, you are not more insightful than the guy next to you. You, you aren't, we aren't. It is not because I'm more obedient or I'm, I would be more holy or more religious or more inclined to hear. There's nothing in us that meets the condition. There isn't anything that meets us. We don't hear and because we're good hearers be given the gift to hear. We are given the gift and then we hear. And we're given the gift not because of anything worthy in us. There is nothing to boast of in us but because God is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of love and chose to give to you. By his own choice, his own, to use a word from the Bible, election. That's what we're bumping up against here. Without using the word in this passage, we're bumping up against the doctrine of election, which is taught all through the Bible. That word is a word from the Bible. On the lips, off the pen of Paul and Peter, as we'll see. What we're bumping up against here is the choice of God, an aspect of divine election. The biblical reality that God has a particular people that for no human reason He has decided to save. And having decided to save that people in eternity past, He gave to them to you. He gave to them the gift of understanding the mystery of the Gospel. That when as time rolls on and you are born and you come in front of it, you have ears to hear. Even though, like all the rest, we would be completely unworthy in ourselves, He chose you. This is to be loved with a great love.
And understand what happens here. Sometimes Christians, right at this point, you tragically shoot yourself in the foot. And you can't feel the love because all you can feel is the pain. You, you miss that the doctrine of election is a doctrine about love and mercy and grace. Because all you can think about is, what, what, what are the, the details of that? And how does that work out? And what about this one? He loved you. And if he had not chosen to love you and had not given you the gift, you would in yourselves be dead in your sin, blind and lost. It is a doctrine. It is a biblical truth about the vast, wide, long, high, deep love of God. It is a profound love because it is hard to understand. It is complex. It is a super abundant love because it far surpasses everything you can imagine in its breadth and depth and height and length and duration and strength. It is a particular love because it is a love for you. It is a triumphant love because it overcomes everything and actually saves it is an amazing, an amazing, gracious, a mighty, merciful, marvelous love for you. To you he gave the gift of knowing. An amazing thing. Which plays itself out in life. We see in the second point. In light of verses 9, and particularly verse 10, then we're in a position to look again at this parable and see more of what's here. So here's the second observation. Looking at the parable, this particular parable again, we see the work of God determines how and why people respond to the gospel. The work of God determines how and why people respond to the gospel. Recall the setting, verse 4, there's this crowd flowing in, gathering as he speaks. Jesus seems very popular. Everywhere he goes, he seems very popular. And yet, as we've already seen and will increasingly note, all is not as it seems. A divide exists. A divide among people who listen to Jesus. A divide is going to widen and deepen until eventually most people, even most of these people, are going to crawl, call out for his crucifixion. Some will side with Jesus ultimately, but many won't. Most won't. And they're going to turn back. So this parable tells us why. And it tells us not only to just kind of inform us and not only to alert us, but also to encourage us. Because there can be, if you don't understand this, there can be a great big kind of a pulling out of the rug from under you. There, here's a massive crowd. Everybody loves us. Whoa, 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 whoa. Crucify him, crucify him. What happened? That can be very disorienting and very discouraging. And so Jesus tells us what's going on, what's going on in the world, what God's doing in it so that we can know, and also so that we can be encouraged about ourselves and about other people too. This gospel is proclaimed to a crowd by Jesus, and so we shouldn't expect any better results ourselves. He preaches, and he says, four things happen. When the gospel goes out there, four things happen, which are really just varieties of two things. People either accept it and hold fast to it, one, or they don't, two. And sometimes the rejection is immediate and very clear. Indifference or lack of concern, maybe even violent opposition. Satan gobbles up the seed, takes it away, so there's no response. It's outright rejection, clear and immediate. But at other times, the rejection is not so clear and not so immediate, more gradual, eventual. Second and third soils. 
A little plant pops up and there's joy there and, and seeming faith. And it goes on for a little while, verse 13. Or verse 14, a larger plant grows up that in all the outward form looks just like a Christian. Goes on for a while. And in the moment, for a while, the fact that it's only apparent joy and only apparent belief and only an apparent form of a Christian is not apparent. Nobody can tell. It looks like acceptance. It looks like faith. But in time, affliction comes. Second soil or third soil. Blessing comes. You know, marvelous blessing. Abundance and wealth and riches. And that chokes out the word. It comes. It comes to all of us. It comes to everybody in the world. And when things like that come to us, in the moment, you can't tell what you're dealing with. This this affliction or this plenty. What are we dealing with here? Is this a genuine Christian or not? Is a genuine believer or not? I don't know. But eventual rejection comes and shows it. Most who hear the word reject it immediately or eventually, but certainly. Soils one, two, and three. Most, but not all. Fourth soil. Verse 15 tells us that there are those of good soil who accept the word of the kingdom of God. They hear it. The word's there. They hold it fast. They bear fruit with patience, with faith. They face afflictions just like soil too. This, it's common to us. We, we, will be, we, we will be like soil too, facing affliction. We'll be John the Baptist in prison with those prison bars wondering... Is this really the way it is? We'll be Peter facing persecution, worried about that. We will be Solomon facing the abundance of everything and led away to drift. But this fourth soil, this one with patience comes back and does bear fruit. Holds tight to it. Why? What does it say? Hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Hold it fast. Why? Because this soil has an honest and good heart. This soil is good soil. Where did you get that? Where did the good heart come from? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. The secrets of the good news. To you it has been given because God decided to give it. And therefore, you see and you see. You hear and you hear. In the words of the New Covenant from the Old Testament, He has taken out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that then moves you to follow His decrees. Where did the good heart come from? God gave it to you. We don't make our hearts good. We don't make the soil good. It is a gift given to you. And what we should say at this point, behold the glory of the grace of God. Because if He did not give that, you would not have it. And you would not be in verse 15. You would be in one of the first three soils. Behold the glory of the grace of God and be loved and revel in it. Revel in it. Revel in it. Rejoice in it and be humbled by it and blown away by the mercy and the grace of God. You are not the fourth soil by your own efforts to hold fast. You hold fast because you are the fourth soil. 
You hold fast because you've been given a good heart by the grace of God. It is not up to your works in any stretch of anybody's imagination. It is a gift given by God in grace and mercy and in love to you. In His great mercy. Back up. 1 Peter chapter 1. To God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To the people of God in modern Turkey. To Christians, God's elect. In His great mercy, He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. In great mercy, God has done it for you. Be loved in that and revel in it and rejoice in it and rest in it, emboldened in it. And don't lose heart in your moments of failing and flailing. When you find yourself in soils two and three and facing affliction or struggling in, in the abundance of this American life, repent and turn back. That's what a good heart does. See the glory of this Christ who has saved you and turn back to him and come back. Don't lose heart. Yes, you face affliction. Yes, you struggle. Uh-huh. Yep. But you began a good work and you will not let it go by the wayside and forget it and not complete it. Come back. So we see this about ourselves. We understand what God is doing in us. We realize the glorious, gracious awesomeness of God for you about yourself but then also he tells us this so that we understand something about the world all around us. Don't be surprised by the opposition of the world. One thing to take from this, don't be surprised by it or discouraged by it. He's alerting us, this is going to happen. Soil two and soil three people, it's going to happen. Judas is going to happen. Don't be surprised by it or discouraged by it. Don't fall back in discouragement or surprise. Don't fall back in and into passivity or fatalism. You know what fatalism is? Fatalism says the end will be no matter what happens. That's not, that's not what this is. Easy to think. People can hear, oh, I should just, I don't have to do anything. I mean, passivity, fatalism, because it isn't what you just said. Election means that what we do doesn't matter. God determines who responds to the gospel. Careful. Indeed, I'm very clearly saying God determines how, when, who responds to the gospel. To the gospel. But how will they believe the gospel if they haven't heard the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel if no one preaches to, to them? And how will anybody preach if no one's sent? This is the thinking of the New Testament. Indeed, God decides who responds to the gospel and the means is the gospel is brought to them. Hear the language of Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, talking about his preaching ministry. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. It's Paul's words. So that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. The elect are out there somewhere. We don't know who they are. This is spoken to insiders, recall. We have no way of discerning. We have no way of knowing who on the outside, who in your neighborhood, who in your workplace, who at your school, on your sports team. We have no way whatsoever of knowing who is elect. And we are never anywhere ever commanded to try to figure that out. Because it is an impossibility. Paul says, Paul thinks, we are to think, they're out there somewhere. This is not pessimism and fatalism and, and discouragement. It is great encouragement. They are out there somewhere. God has given to some to know. And when I speak the gospel to them, whoever they are, wherever they are, whenever I say it, I will endure anything that comes my way for the sake of whoever it is that needs to hear this and be saved by it. And they will hear and they will say because God has given it to them to hear and know. 
It is greatly encouraging, not discouraging. It is greatly engaging driving, not passivity driving. There is no fatalism in this. There is great confidence in it. Go anywhere and talk to anybody and endure anything, trusting that God will save His people. Even people like Paul, that nobody, including Paul, would have put a dollar on. Including Paul. Paul would not have bet that he was one who had been given to know the mysteries. And here he is, the one writing about the mysteries. Anybody. We are to look at the outside and realize that we don't know anything, and anybody could be elect. And that includes you. If you're sitting here as an outsider listening to all this conversation, wondering, what in the world is that guy talking about? Talking about this privilege and this election and this, this selectivity, and I get a feeling he's not talking about me. No. No. I am talking about you. Just like Paul presumes that anybody out there could be. I'm going to talk to everybody because I don't know. On the flip side... You should assume about yourself, anyone, even me, anyone could be elect. Because election is not about how moral a person is, how religious a person is, how good a person is, how upright, how educated, how American, how white, how male. It has nothing whatsoever to do with any of that. It has nothing to do with your birth, with your status, with your orientation, with your intellectual abilities, with your religiosity, with your moralism. It has nothing to do with any of that. So it could be you. And trying to figure out if it's me or not is completely the wrong direction, therefore. The Bible never points us towards figure out, are you, is this person elect? Because we cannot know. The Bible never tells us to try to figure that out. We cannot know it. So what do you do? Do you have ears to hear this? Then hear this. There is a judgment coming from the holy God against all human sin, which is ultimately all of its sin against him. He will judge. But God in mercy sent Jesus, His Son. God became flesh, sent to the earth to go to the cross to die under the judgment of God that should have come against people. It instead comes against God the Son. And He on the cross renders right payment for sin. Proper payment. Sufficient payment. And he made a promise then. Hear this. Anyone and everyone who comes to me, hopeless and guilty in their sin, humble and surrendering control of themselves, like the prostitute of chapter 7, not at all a moral, upright, upstanding person, but broken and humble. Not like the Pharisee, proud and I don't need this, but like the woman, humble. Anyone and everyone who comes to me, says Jesus, humble, asking me in faith, Jesus, I need your payment applied to my debt my sin debt, every single one of those such people will find the mercy and the grace of God powerfully, lovingly, amazingly, marvelously saving you and pulling you out of death into a glorious kingdom of rest and peace. Saved from death into kingdom reign, made into a new creation, Filled then with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Yours now and forever. This is the message of the gospel to which you are to turn your ears. Do you have ears to hear that? Hear it and believe and be saved and be made new. 
That is the message of the Bible to you. That is the message that we Christians carry to anyone and to everyone who will hear. Knowing that many will not, but knowing that some certainly will because God will save his people. Salvation is of the Lord. Your salvation is of the Lord. Bless his holy name. Let's pray. Lord, would you cause these truths, some of which are complex, to rest in us and to move us to a grateful, rejoicing, joyful, engaging love. A confident love of the world all around us. A resting love of you. You first loved. Lead us then into love. Lord, would you save Maybe some here, maybe some who hear this later, would you save? For those of us who are still confused and are wrestling with things, would you cause things to settle and the main, the salient, the issue type points to rise up and be clarified? Build up your church. Sanctify your people. And it is fitting that at the end here, Lord, we say thank you Thank you, thank you for giving to us to know the mysteries. We owe everything to you. You are very, very kind. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.